0: Basketball Corner podcast. I'm your host Adam Camaro, and this is an interesting time in the Duke season when I know some are a bit stressed out about the potential of this team having just come off a 113-101 double overtime loss at Wake Forest, which is pretty brutal. We are going to get into it. I do understand for something like this. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But so soon after NC State, I think more than the stats, there are some stats, but more than the stats, it's just some very specific aspects that I've mentioned that, I mean, are just worth harping on because it is consistent with the season in terms of will these issues be fixed? I don't know because this is stuff I've been talking about all season. It just kind of reared its ugly head against Wake Forest, sometimes more than we've seen versus – some of the weaker teams that Duke has played, even though Wake should have been one of those teams that you could consider weak. But let's get into it. So I am joined by Greg for this episode, same as last time. Greg, thanks for joining me. It's a, It's got to be a tough pill to swallow for Duke players, for fans, and just for everyone. I'll start off real quick by just kind of giving one uh, Coach K quote that he said and just tell me what what your honest response is to it so quote we didn't play like we practiced we played young we've played really good basketball but we didn't tonight
1: so wh- how do you feel about that well first of all thank you for having me back it's great to be here and i heard that quote too in his press conference it, it honestly it's a it's a it's it it makes me feel better in a way because I actually don't have the doom and gloom that I think a lot of Duke fans have over this game. They're young, you know, the, this, this sort of team is going to lay a couple of eggs, right? And they've done it a few times here and where they are in the season sort of makes it sort of, I don't know, sort of strange. If this, if this game happens in November, you know, you sort of shake it off as like sort of um, as growing pains. And I believe he said something like we're 28 games in, we shouldn't, we shouldn't really do that anymore. I, I mean, I think these are the kind of things that you need uh, when you're growing. Uh, do we need five of them? No, <laughs> but uh, but um, I'm not ready to give up on this team as of yet. How did you feel about that quote?
0: I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I feel like it takes away all accountability from the from what happened during those uh, non was it 79 seconds that I think most people will remember and I understand why they will remember them and the 79 seconds I'm talking about are after after Matthew Hurt made a free throw to put Duke up nine it all went wrong it all went wrong and that's what people will remember, I'll get into the specifics of exactly that time range and, and why it happened or how it happened but I think that is what will stick in the minds of many the same way that Jay Williams, the Miracle Minute, the same way that were traded against North Carolina just a few weeks ago. The end of the games, that is that is what matters most, and basically the result matters most. But there's a lot that happened during the game which I felt could have been, do- been done differently strategically. And for Kay, just to say we played young, that eliminates everything. It makes everyone just concentrate on, hmm, how did they play young, and immediately – your, their mind, or at least my mind, it gravitates toward that 79 seconds because that is exactly what I feel he means. I mean, there's other aspects like uh, the, the fouls, and there are there is the kind of the shooting against the zone defense. There's the post uh, defense in the second half. There's other aspects, but I think those 79 seconds is what, if he even if he's not referring to, that's what most people are going to gravitate towards, and that to me. That's tough because, yeah, those are not the greatest moments, the guys who are involved. It's not the greatest moments of their lives, and there's more that went on, and I feel like it's important that even if some, most of the fans don't, that at least those players do.
1: Well, well, I wanted to, let me just to piggyback off of that a little bit, the 79 seconds, the, uh, the people remembering, you are right, but I do think there's some context. I do think that a lot of good things happened in this game. A lot of interesting things happened in this game. Um, That could be jumping off points for the future. But when he said that they played young, I do think that like um, what I think it wasn't necessarily the fouls, but it was sort of the inconsistency of the fouls. Uh, And I'm not really talking about officiating here. I'm talking about when Duke chose to foul or when Duke committed fouls and when they didn't. I believe he mentioned in the press conference, you know, they were foul crazy in the first half. Right. And then, um, you know, they they played a little bit more discipline in the second half. They played defense without fouling. Krzyzewski preaches that all the time. By the end of the game, um, who had fouled out? Uh, Robinson had fouled out, DeLaurier had fouled out, and Carey had fouled out, correct? Mm -hmm. And um, so the front line had 15 fouls. I don't quite remember how many fouls DeLaurier had in the first half, but I think he only played four minutes. Um, DeLaurier is not young, um, at at least for a a college team. Robinson is not young, at least for a college team. Uh, And Carey is. Um, So what I think he meant was that that everybody played young, he wasn't really necessarily blaming it on the youth of the team. They just played, you know, like uh, like they didn't really have the experience to win a game like this, and uh, and it and it was disheartening. But I don't necessarily think it was about the 79 seconds as much as I think it was about that defensive effort um, with more like about eight minutes to go in the half where they just started to get a little sloppy on defense.
0: We'll absolutely get into those are some good points about. How the fouls were committed and exactly what happened around, it was about uh, the under 12 timeout. But uh, just a little context in terms of historically. So, not the greatest uh, history to give, but all right, let's start out. They lost to two unranked teams in North Carolina in six days, which is an obvious yikes. They're one and two against Carolina schools right now. And the last time they actually, if hopefully, they do not lose to UNC, but the last time they lost to all three Carolina schools was 2003. So, and. They could uh, play NC State again, so they have two more against the against the North Carolina schools before potential matchups in the ACC tournament. Hopefully, they don't end up with a, a losing record for the season against them. But one and two right now, tied for most points allowed under K. The first time allowing 100 since 2009, when they got smashed by UNC. Duke is actually now 0 and 5 in double overtime games under Coach K, and 0 and 7 overall. In the Coach K era, when you add in the two additional games coached by Pete Gaudette in 1995. 81 versus Vanderbilt. You got 84 versus UNC. 91 at Arizona. Then 95 at Virginia with Gaudet, 95 at UNC with Gaudet. That was Jeff Capel, kind of half-court shot, or almost half-court. And then the last double overtime game before this weight game, guess who it was against. Can you, can you take a wild guess, Greg, who the opponent was?
1: I, I don't remember. I'm
0: it trying be, to think. It would I don't be the remember. most ironic opponent you can think of. The last time before Wake.
1: Uh
0: all right, it is Wake. Wake?
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I should have let you yeah. get another second. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is Wake. When in, in 2003 they lost 94 to 80. They were outscored 20 to 6 in the second overtime when Wake started on a 12 run uh run in that second overtime. the Leading scorer was Vitas Danilous. I Kind of brought back some memories there. Sure. So yeah, interesting how. Did how, that team uh, have? Did Wake that team again? have
1: Justin? Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Did that team have Justin Gray? Is that is that the Justin Gray team with Wake Forest? I don't seem to remember so, some Justin, Justin Gray, JJ that. Redick I think, battles.
0: I think Josh Howard was a freshman, um, from mm-hmm. what I remember. I think Chris Paul came like the next year. Yeah anyway, Yeah, and for what it's worth, uh, K is 34-27 in single overtime and 1-0 and 0 in triple overtime. Clemson 82 when he won in 73-72. So it's interesting how he's win- winning record in uh, single overtime and one- the one time they played in triple, but 0-5 in double overtime, uh, allowing 100 points. He's allowed 100-plus uh, points 17 times, but <laughs> 1983, his third season, it occurred seven times just in that season. Then there was one time in '87, one time in '89. And actually, here's something: if you want to maybe feel a little more optimistic, 1990, three times um, when they lost at Michigan, one at Maryland, and then I'm sure uh, many, if not remember, watching at least know the score with UNLV lost uh, by 30. So that's an NCAA finalist. Kind of they lost, uh, they allowed 100 points three times. So it's not all lost. Uh, 1991, uh, Arizona that double overtime game lost 103-96. 92 Kentucky, I'm sure many most remember that one. Then we got 2000 UVA won 109-100. 2009 UNC I mentioned that lost 101-87. And now 2020 at Wake Forest 113-101 in double overtime. So we got uh, Wake they had one Duke had won 11 straight 19 of 20 against Wake. So unfortunately, that kind of streak is now ended. And uh, Goldwire, he'd actually started the Kansas games and the two games and Trey was out. Back like at the first Wake game, that was when he was really officially penciled into the starting lineup. So from that game on, it's been every game except for UNC. To go back, that was his first game where he's really penciled into the lineup. Here's a random kind of crazy stat that is completely meaningless. They are 11-0 in eight different lineups, whenever Alex O'Connell, Jack White, and Joey Baker are in the starting lineup, and twelve and five in the other four starting lineups. So obviously, they should just start O'Connell, White, and Baker. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's a lot of contacts involved in that. Most of it's in like
1: the non-conference. But I just yeah. found it's one of those weird stats. It's, that's really interesting, actually. And um and um O'Connell had himself, you know, a pretty consistent game again. Uh, you know, again I got a little like he got a little lost on defense at times, but. But you know he made a big he made a, he made a big shot at the end. I think he did he hit that big three in the overtime? And um, and um, you know I, I have to just say like I'm gonna I'm gonna be sort of like the glasses half full guy on this podcast because there are some I think there's some great things. I mean we we haven't talked about uh, I mean I'm, and I'm sure you're getting to this, but we haven't talked about Justin Robinson and we haven't talked about I thought Matthew Hurt had another nice game um, and uh, again the 79 seconds that you were talking about, but. I think I mentioned this to you. Uh, they gave Wendell Moore the player of the game, and then 79 seconds later, <laughs> the game went into overtime. Uh, Wendell Moore was amazing. I, I thought in this game, um, you know, he turned the ball over quite a few times, but, but uh, you know, he's a freshman; these things happen. Um, these are uh, the, this, this, that. To piggyback off of your O'Connell statement, I just got to say, I like the kid. I don't mind him playing anymore. It's it's, it's been it's been going okay for him lately.
0: All right, so that's basically all the kind of historical context for what it's worth. So I guess I feel I don't, I don't want to completely cater to what I feel like is the lowest common denominator, but I also understand that after a loss like this, everybody doesn't want to hear every detail. So I'll go into what I feel are the major aspects with – because I, I think there's just very obvious things in this. Uh, and First, let me say the season preview, I, I compared this team a lot, I said, to 2007. I said it was 2007 with bigger potential because of a scoring big in Varn if he develops. And for what it's worth, he's developed much better than I, I could even have hoped for. I said the sure. defense would be the identity. Absolutely. No matter what goes on with the offense, the defense would be the identity. The offense and the rotations, the lineups, I wanted that fluid. I say it every year, but I felt like for this team – Without the kind of alpha type of scores, it was even more necessary than before. So fluid adaptation by K within the season, game to game, and within each game. Not just one of the three, everything. Every single time, I didn't want anything to get stagnant. I wanted it to be what could potentially help this team reach its ceiling, not just what is working right now, what could be better. So what happened in this game? The defense kind of uh, went kaput. The offense got stagnant. And the rotations, lineups, pretty much there was not much adaptation at all. As what tends to happen when Duke loses under K, that second half lineup, it's pretty much maybe five guys and a six guy. And, and basically, it would have been pretty much five guys if Vern hadn't fouled out. I think he just would have been the same five all the time. If the only other two with Robinson and Hurt, I think they came in to kind of. Uh, when Vern fouled out. I mean, the offense, at a certain point, about halfway through the second half, it was just half-court high screens, horn sets, and secondary break transition. So, overall, I would say it reminded me of the Emeka-Okafor game, just in terms of the fouls. And I'm talking about 2004 against UConn in the, in the Final Four. Because 2004, three different Duke bigs. He, I think he had four fouls. If not four, definitely three. But I do believe he had four fouls in the first half. And that was when I, we were really hoping that Duke would get a bigger lead. But he came back and just fouled out all the bigs. I think it was Sheldon Williams, Shavlick Randolph. And they even put uh, – I can't remember who the other one was. Taman Domzalski. Somebody else in there. And Okafor just fouled him out one at a time. And that was what happened against Wake Forest with Verne, with uh, with Justin Robinson, with Javin. But this wasn't a mecca Okafor we're talking about. So we'll get into exactly what happened there. Let's start with the first half. So Duke came out, and I think what most are going to say is a little lethargic. Wake came out pretty intense. Duke was lethargic, so you can kind of compare that to NC State. So you're going to get the usual, they didn't want it enough. Why aren't they coming out intense? I think that's what K means in terms of you got to come out really with your mind right every single time. What really frustrated them was Wake's zone. They only scored on five of twenty-three possessions in the first half. They righted the ship in the second half, but just five of twenty-three possessions in the first half. And to be honest, Wake just really started out on fire. How did you? How did you feel? What was your reaction to Duke just immediately falling behind?
1: Well, I liked the lineup that they had out there, and um, and that's a uh, that's the that's the group that I want to start starting this game. I did think that they came out aggressive, but like you said, they had a little, you know, the for whatever reason, and I suppose with younger teams this happens. The zone always takes um, a few minutes to get used to because even though it's a zone, everybody's zone is a little bit different, and it always and it's always it just always seems like it confuses Duke, um, you, you know, for as as long as a half. Or at least for seven minutes, or at least until they can get something going on their own defensively. And in the first half of uh, of the game yesterday, like you said, they were playing they, their defense. They weren't they weren't starting anything from their defense. They were fouling and um, and putting Wake Forest on the line. I don't remember the free throw disparity, um, but uh, uh, but it was a huge difference between the first half and the second half um Wake Forest was playing the same defense in the second half i don't really think they changed i think just like i said duke was able to um i guess at the end of the first half actually as as well they uh they were able to uh it 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 just it just it just seemed like an obstacle that they were able to get over but for whatever reason the you know, throw a zone at duke and for five minutes they're gonna look they're they're gonna look a little foolish
0: i will say uh the two games which they faced a lot of zone cal and uh syracuse They actually did really well. Um, Cal was pretty much Vern at the nail. The free throw line just doing his thing. And Cal was just not – they're just not very talented. Hopefully they can get better. But bottom line, they are not a very talented team. So Vern was just able to physically dominate them. And Syracuse, there was just constant movement. There was a lot of action. And that's how to beat a zone. You cannot just stand still. You can't just chuck threes. got to move you got to anticipate. you got to be ready for it. And that's what they did well against Syracuse, and that's what they did not do well against Wake Forest. Not nearly enough movement, and that's what the zone wants you. They want you to just kind of get stagnant. It forces you to pass. There's not going to be that isolation, which unfortunately Duke relies a little bit too much on this season. So they were forcing Duke to beat them from outside, and Duke wasn't really able to to make plays to get the ball inside the arc. That's the thing against Syracuse. That's what Syracuse wants you to do. Duke didn't shoot really any much many threes at all against Syracuse because they were doing whatever it took to get the ball inside the arc. In terms they did of... Find... I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, in terms of you mentioned the fouls, Here, here's the thing about the fouls that I found frustrating. Even watching, like, right away, I could say, like, this is just unnecessary. It it was more of the reaching. It was like if oh, somebody's yeah. going to foul a shooter, that's one thing. But throughout the game, there was too much, and especially early on, because once you have once uh, the game kind of develops into a rhythm, then kind of fouls they do happen within the rhythm of the game. And uh, later on, you can kind of accept that some of them will, will just happen. But early on, I mean, you like six shooting. But six on the floor, both Vern and and early on, both just reached in. And it, it's, it's almost giving away a foul. They both did the same in the second half, a non-shooting foul, just an unnecessary foul. And I saw that a lot. That's not a stat I usually keep track of, but it just it seems so obvious. And I know in overtime, especially the first overtime, some of those fouls were to kind of send weight to the line. So just in the first half and second half, like the second half, six shooting, eight on the floor. I mean, at least make them earn it. Don't just reach in, and that right. gets sometimes into what was going on in the post and what caused it. But either way, Vern, we saw how much how necessary he was on the floor, especially against a guy like Olivier Sar. And he has to recognize that, and he can't. He has to understand how important he is because Olivier Sar. I talked about how Vern he's done well recently against uh, some of the bigs he's faced. Olivier Sar. I to be honest, I if he can stay out of foul trouble, he should be one of the more dominant players in the ACC. He has a lot more bulk than a lot of the other guys. He's really versatile. He can go, he can go left, he can go right, he can go either direction. And so Vern hasn't faced anyone with Olivier Sar his his type of skill set in a while. And even Vern, which is unfortunate on his birthday, actually, he said he wasn't he wasn't physical enough, and he took the blame for that. The blame for the game shouldn't be on him, but at the same time, as much as Trey, they kind of, Trey's the leader, they play through him, they play like him, they, they want to have that blue-collar mentality, Vern is going to be the central point, and he needs to be out there. There's going to be games when some of their smaller lineups can do damage, but the mass majority of the time... Vern absolutely has to be out there.
1: Well, that's actually something I was going to mention to you because uh, SAR was the difference with Kerry with, uh, with and certainly the big difference between Wake Forest's zone and Syracuse's zone. Um, if memory serves, in the Syracuse game, while we did handle their zone better than we did Wake's, Syracuse still did get out to an early lead. I think Duke took the, I, t- I think it was a 21 to 14 lead actually, but I think Duke took the, the lead by the half and then never looked back. But Syracuse didn't have somebody like Sar to flummox, uh, carry the way carry did. In fact, I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, carry got the quick hook in the game. Uh, he didn't have, um, he didn't, he, I, I believe he only had one foul at the time. And usually he stays in with one foul, but he got a quick early hook and, uh, Nate James went over and, uh, and 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 was like, not in his face or anything like that, but was definitely talking to him, uh, definitely coaching him, uh, which is when uh, Justin Robinson was getting his minutes. And I wanted to ask you about that because, in the in the post game press conference, Shashevsky um, in his opening statement, he was not prompted by a reporter. Um, said he didn't he didn't put he didn't throw carry under the bus, but he said Robinson kept them in the game, and um, and which you know, which, which is true, which is true to an extent. Robin, Robinson came in, gave them really, really excellent minutes, and was, and was, you know, it was was a ball of energy out there, and everyone did seem to feed it off off of it a little bit. However, there was no follow up question. There was no, well, what did you see in Robinson this week in practice? What, like, was uh, you know, usually he sa- he'll say something like, you know, so and so had a great great practice, and I knew that they were going to, you know, you know, give us good minutes in the game. There's no follow-up question regarding that, and I was wondering if you, like you said, what you said about Sarb, him being able to go left and go right and really bother Vern, was was this, was this Krzyzewski just saying, I need somebody in there who's got slightly better footwork right now, and I'm going to go to Robinson? Or do you think Robinson had a great practice, had a great week, and, um, and that's who he went to as opposed to somebody like Jack White or even Deloria in that situation?
0: I think Javin was struggling, and I think they just needed a, a kind of a jump start. They needed energy. Well, I always said, like I only devote about like, five to ten minutes to like actual like trend stats. Last time I went, the ones I did give, I think they were important. And one I focused on was Duke's lack of turning teams over recently at all, especially live ball. And the same thing occurred against Wake Forest; they weren't turning them over. When the offense isn't exactly too creative, and they're not turning teams over, they need something to really give a jump start. And that's what Justin Robinson was able to do with a couple of those blocks. He, he was able to get Duke out in transition. And as the game went on, it became clearer and clear That's how Duke was going to score the majority of their points. There needs to be those uh, kind of plan B options because the half court just wasn't working well. Bottom line, it wasn't working well, so they needed to have another option. And I always say, like, you, you have to get those bonus points based on it could be threes it could be uh, second chance points it could be transition could be free throws has to be something robinson was able to get them some help in transition so i think that's where his biggest impact came and once they got running i mean as many young teams do as many experienced teams do once they just get that little bolt of energy it can go a long way so i thought that was robinson's biggest impact there in terms of uh, sar giving Vern trouble Vern did pick up the foul against him but at the same time it wasn't Vern who' who sar was scoring against because one of the most wild possessions of the game wild stats of the game out of 25 points that SAR scored 23 of them were with Vern off the court he scored two points the entire game with Vern on the court so he wasn't scoring against Vern Kind of like Vern against uh, some of the shot blockers he went against, he got them in foul trouble, so it was never even a matchup, really. And that's what Sar was able to do to Vern, just basically just beat the other guys who were in there so he didn't even have to worry about Vern because he wasn't doing much actually against Vern. One thing I thought was big in terms of what Wake added from the last time in the ACC preview, I actually said Shaundi Brown, who missed the first game versus Duke, I said he probably from what I'd seen of him, had the best opportunity to make a huge jump and be Wake's kind of alpha. And I thought he could be a a 20-a-game type of player. A lot of talent in that guy. Did not play uh, in the first matchup against Duke. I thought that had a big impact, absolutely huge impact against Duke. And uh, I think Olivier got in foul trouble in that game. And so basically what Duke was able to do is just concentrate the entire game plan on Childress. So Childress obviously had a huge impact on this game, as we'll get into. But yeah, I mean, Sar, When, when you think about twenty-three of twenty-five points with Vernon off the court, he needed to be on there. Just had to be well, on. Well,
1: I, I suppose the, one of the things that flummo, what I mean by flummoxing him is actually Sar defending Carey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Carey. You know, Kerry always gets his points, but uh, but he but Sar was a difficult thing for for Carey to contend with. That's for sure uh sorry got a few blocks on him nice really clean blocks as well and um and uh man uh i was impressed with him i really was uh is uh but anyway you were gonna transition to to uh to childress
0: won't really the major effect on this game happened about halfway through the second half so i think before we get into that which is obviously the more painful parts of the game let's just focus a little bit more on individual players and uh, let's start with Justin Robinson because in his second biggest minutes, um, was, he gave a spark similar to Pittsburgh 2018. It really reminded me of his performance against uh, Pittsburgh 2018. To me, it looks a lot like Taishan Prince out there. I mean, he really has that same type of look to him in terms of those batwing uh, length, length arms. And it was great. I mean, it, the impact was also similar to another guy who made a big impact against a pit team. That was Jordan Goldwire last season. That was the first game, I think many considered the Louisville game, where he really broke out, but it was actually Pitt. Pitt was just like Wake, where Duke came out just a little bit flat, and they needed something to spark the team, and Goldwire did exactly that. He gave Duke a spark against Pitt, and I think that's what led Kay to believe he could trust Goldwire and play him against Louisville and perhaps provide another spark, which he did. So Justin Robinson, I mean, the blocks I talked about, the offensive rebound, it almost reminded me a bit of uh, the Brian Zubek kind of grabbed the offensive rebound, kick out for three. Trey, Trey just took a couple dribbles in, nailed a, uh, a jumper from like the left elbow. But in the same way, it's that same type of play that can provide a spark, which just wouldn't be there otherwise. And the way Robinson does everything so definitively, he knows where to be. He's intelligent. And in even before the season started, Coach K actually called him. He said Robinson was was uh, Duke's best talker on defense, and that's huge for a uh, for a team like this. I mean, I talked about Jack White, which I'll mention in a second because I think that actually could really factors in in terms of why or why not did he not get potentially more minutes against Wake. Robinson really directed traffic more, and this Duke team they need somebody to talk. Bottom line, they need a talker, while there are many, many, many basketball aspects that are settling the result of these games, it's impossible not to at least understand that this team isn't the most vocal, and it's going to be tough when they get into tough situations to overcome certain teams and certain scenarios if they don't talk
1: more. Well, that's sort of my question from before, though. Like, why now? Like, Everyone has, I mean, Robinson gave them, has always given them good minutes. When Robinson comes in, it, it's not like a walk-on coming in where you're like, you're sort of like cheering for them, like, "Yay, a walk-on's in!" And if they do something great, uh, you're like, "Hey, good for him, and finally." Or something like that. When Robinson plays, he, you know, he wants it. He wants the ball, he, and he's confident with it. He seems like a player when he comes when he came into the game. He seemed like he, he had the body language of a player that's in the rotation. With regular with regularity, and not only that, his teammates used him as if they played with him often. I mean, I, obviously they play with him in practice, but that's that's different. But he seemed to fit right in, like uh, like like to what it is they were doing. Uh, they ran the pick and roll with him, I think twice in a row, uh, one successfully, one not successfully. But still, I think he got fouled. Uh, I think he got fouled on, on on one of them. And my question is, like, this was my question from before: is like, if this is there, like, why? why didn't why didn't you know why didn't we need the spark against louisville or nc state i mean it i mean i mean what was it about the wake forest game where shishkesky went to him not only just in the game but so early in the game I, i'm i'm very interested to know if if it was just a particularly bad week for some people at practice or if it's just a particularly good week for robinson
0: um I would say that some some of it had to do with foul trouble, some of it had to do with energy, some of it had to do with just not getting knowing that you have a player who'd be caught who wouldn't be caught out of position. And Robinson provides all of those characteristics. What he does is give a set floor instead of the ceiling. The ceiling is where Duke could absolutely rise to bigger or as big as the potential as they can but at least like Robinson he kind of steadies the troops so I think he hasn't gotten more time I mean some of it could actually be just because he's in school a lot he doesn't even practice or he gets to practice as late sometimes and I'm not saying he's not kind of up to up to par on what the team is doing he's been with the team four years so it's not like this is all brand new stuff even though the system does change a bit each season I I just think uh, chemistry is important, but if he's as good a talker on defense as Kay says, it is worth wondering. So I I can say like his offense isn't exactly big time uh, outside of his movement, but to get a guy who moves within the system, who freelances, who doesn't just stand there when there was way too much of that going on, I think that was big because Javin can do that at times. But his hands can at times also be unreliable. So you got Robinson, who's who's, who's cutting to lane very definitively, who can uh, just create mismatches in ter- with his length on defense. But at the same time, on defense, Javin, he is much kind of filled out his body. I mean, he's not a huge guy either. But Robinson, there's, a, there's he's not he's not packing a whole bunch of pounds there. There's, there's not. He doesn't weigh a whole lot. So when he was trying to guard Olivier Saar actually in the post, I mean he got called for like three fouls just before Saar even got the ball. Just kind of just getting pinned down, and there was nothing he can do about it. He, he would, he would be. It would be interesting to see where he can play for occasional situations. I think he'd actually, he could absolutely provide quality minutes. So I, I do think do it think- is worth wondering, but at the same time I can kind of see it both ways
1: do you think that this is um that he that this is going to be something that we're going to see for the rest of the season do you anticipate him coming in against virginia early
0: if he if he didn't airball both threes <laughs> i would say <laughs> it, it absolutely gives an, another look in terms of hey maybe even duke could go five out when when vern needs a break or is in foul trouble the fact that he didn't even come close makes me wonder <laughs> i know he had some in garbage time in earlier games this season or maybe in the, in, in the other seasons but at the same time, you need you need somebody to at least be able to provide that. I think that's why he's – like I think Javin shot a three against uh, Wake. Just somebody who can give a different look because of other teams packing it in so much. It, I, I wouldn't rule it out, especially if Duke needs energy because they know he can give that energy. But in terms of who he's going to guard on defense, that would be a question. But I think just his length is uh, is, a, is something that I'm, I'm not sure who else quite has his length. I mean, I remember even uh, Countdown to Craziness. Trey, I think it's like his first two possessions, he got blocked by Robinson. And that was just like, woo, And mm-hmm. it kind of made you wonder, is this somebody who can get in the rotation? I didn't predict it, but at the same time, I didn't rule it out. So who knows? Who knows? You, you, you can never be too certain. And with Duke kind of in a bit of a tailspin right now, I wouldn't rule anything out, to be honest. Yeah. Childress. Brandon Childress finally broke the ice. He was, I mentioned him in terms of one of the leading scorers in the ACC who Duke had shot down. 0-7 last game. He missed his 10 shots against uh, Duke in the second matchup, making him 0-17 through 39 and a half minutes in two games against Duke this season. Then just that one bomb with 17 seconds left just broke the ice. Made six of his last ten, including five of his last seven. It's amazing just kind of what that little bit of confidence can do. He, he went from being totally bottled up to all of a sudden just the confidence. I mean, Danny Manning had said confidence is not an issue with him. Well, it was not nice to see him do it do it against Duke. It was nice to see him at least do it, period, towards the end of his senior year because I've always been a fan of his, mostly to be honest. Because Randolph Childress is my favorite non-Duke player ever in the ACC, so I've always kind of had a soft spot for Brandon. But great to see him do well. Not great to see him do well against Duke.
1: I agree, 100%. Good for him. I mean, I didn't want to lose this game, but but you know, I'm I'm glad that I'm I'm really glad he can hold his head up high today. I bet it's been an amazing day for him and his whole family, and uh, I'm happy for him.
0: Okay, and some of the other guys individually, we'll we'll get into them at the end, but let's just roll through the major, major aspects of the game. So, I mean, returning from the under-12 timeout, Duke was up uh, 58-48 with 11.32 left. So at, at that point, Wake had run 50 possessions of offense, scored 23 times, 42 points, 15 of 36 field goals. Uh, I mean, 16 of 21 free throws, so they shot a a lot, but not like an overwhelming amount. Bottom line, uh, 0.84 points per possession. For those who aren't uh, real knowledgeable in points per possession, you want to be above one. Well, one point per possession, that's good. Hopefully a little more above one, but still one one is generally at least kind of the, the line you want to be above. So Wake was below. After that... Wake scored on 31 of their last 40 possessions, putting up 71 <laughs> points. 71 mm-hmm. points, which is even more insane when you consider they didn't score on the last possession of regulation with the children's miss or the, first, the last play of the first overtime when Shawnee Brown uh, kind of threw it out of bounds. In those 40 possessions, Wake shot 20 of 32 field goals, 4 of 7 from 3, 21 of 29 from the line. They averaged 1.775 points per possession. That's absurd. Like, that is absolutely yeah. absurd. So, whatever anybody thinks about Duke's offense, that wasn't the key for the game. That their, The key was their defense. Sometimes the offense and defense can work together symbiotically, but at the same time, the defense was atrocious. And it helped that Wake kind of got on that run, especially when Childress broke the ice. I mean, that kind of gave a pick-me-up to the other Wake players. But at the same time... It's just, it, it's on a, you can't, you can't give, I mean, that's way beyond just a run. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, that, the under 12 timeout, that's, uh it's, it's over 20 minutes, right, right there. So that's an entire half just destroying. The biggest point that needs to be kind of gone over is the post defense. So Matthew Hurt, once, once, once Vern was in foul trouble, and especially when he, he fouled out, Matthew Hurt played the five on defense how would you feel about that
1: I did not feel good about it (laughs) how did you feel about it
0: (laughs) it makes no sense it makes no sense I mean Matthew Hurt it wasn't just against the five he was getting abused all over the place he was playing him at the five Sar was just doing whatever he wanted. I mean, I mentioned in terms of how he scored 23 out of his 25 points on non-Vern. Obviously, some of that comes against Jab and some of that comes against Justin Robinson, but most of it came against Matthew Hurt. Why did they just keep it like that? So it's first, the, the defensive doubles. So what it seemed to me like the plan was, was they, that Kay really wanted Hurt's offense. And he really didn't want Wendell getting in foul trouble. So he kept Wendell at the 4 and Hurt at the 5. And so he had Hurt play, Sar straight up, and he had Wendell and kind of Jordan Goldwire times coming over to double. The doubles were atrocious. Basically, they would just kind of quickly slap at the ball or just uh, reach or be late or just wouldn't do much. And when you got Olivier Sar going against Matthew here, you got you to gotta be there. You got to be there quickly. You got to be there with uh, really aggressive intentions. You got to want to cause havoc. I mean, when teams double Vern, look at the way they double him. They double him in order to cause a turnover, to cause havoc. Duke, that's been a weakness all season. I have mentioned that countless times. I mean, the Bigs, I think the most, the thing I mentioned about the Bigs the most is how they, they get caught in no man's land. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's easy to do so if you don't have other guys kind of being aggressive and helping it kind of hangs you out to dry so these doubles are not doing anything so they, so w- what's going on and that's what's also not causing the turnovers especially if you were going to take a risk in doubling, other things are going to be open this was going on way back against Stephen F. Alston Wendell's got to really double more aggressively Trey's got to double more aggressively Jordan Goldwire's got to double more aggressively You can't just kind of stick your arm out and reach in, because not only are you going to get called for cheap fouls that way, but you're not doing anything to help Matthew Hurt. And Matthew Hurt's already going to struggle. So if you're not doing anything to help him, and and you're taking a risk, what's the point? Like, I don't understand what the point is, and that needs to be communicated more. Like, communication on the court? I mean, you have Matthew Hurt inside, Matthew doesn't have a ton of experience, and even and he has even less at the five. What are the options? Why not front? Because at least then, if you front, then you can have Wendell, Wendell come over, and then you can have Goldwire come over, you can have Trey come over, and give him a different look, instead of just making it so easy for him to catch, and then you double. When, when you see the ball coming over top, I mean, that's what, did, that's what Duke actually did really well at the first game of the season against uh, Yudoka Azubuki. They would actually come over to double while the ball was in the air with the post pin. They were they would come from all different directions. All that creativity seems to have vanished now. Now it's you're, they're just allowing teams to enter it in that easily. I don't get it. So I think if they had fronted him, at least it would have given him a different look. It would have made him think about it more. And it yeah. would have at least... Change things up. When when I talk about this team getting stagnant, mostly I refer to my worry about it on offense and with rotations. Defense, K has over the years really done a fantastic job adapting game to game and within game, and obviously within season. I don't think that occurred against Wake Forest. I, it was just, I mean, Wake was a lot of times running the same type of horn sets that Duke ran. So it's not there wasn't a whole lot going on, but they were just using it to get Sar rolling to the rim and set up on the post against Hurt over and over and over. Nothing changed.
1: So yeah, I'm not sure what you was know, going there was on. A, there was a play at the at the very end of regulation um, where Sar had an uncontest, uncontested dunk because um, because Hurt left him to double. I, I believe I believe it was Childress at the at the right around the free throw line extended. And there was no help for Hurt. Now, Hurt I, he needs all the help that he can get, but there was no one on the baseline when when Sar had when Sar had this dunk. I I was I was I was confused. I was like, well, it, it almost seemed like there were only four Duke players on defense. And I remember, you know, they, the the cliche was like sometimes it seems like there's six of them out there. Uh, looked like there was more like three of them out there <laughs> at the end of the game. So, um, I don't necessarily fault Hurt for going over to help, but. When I mean, you know when you're when the seven footer has an uncontested dunk uh, with the game on the line, uh, you need to you need to get back to the uh, you need to get back to the drawing board.
0: If I'm remembering the same one you're talking about, which may not be, but that was with Trey. So there was another Duke player guarding Sar, but it's Trey Jones who's a foot mm-hmm. shorter. So yeah. it probably looked like nobody was guarding him. So that's <laughs> why you need to really consider whether Duke should be switching this easily, especially at the five. Like, the is typically switch one through four nonstop, sometimes in some seasons at the five as well. But it's hanging Trey out to drive. If Matthew Hurt doesn't get immediate ball pressure on, on uh, the ball handler, it's done. What is Trey supposed to do? There's nothing Trey can do. So that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of bigs getting caught in no man's land. If they're just kind of showing, or maybe a soft hedge, it's not going to do anything. These guys need to play aggressively. You can't just kind of give half a half. I don't even want to say half hearted effort. It's not effort as much as just being confident in what your role is and hurt, especially since playing a five. I I just think he's gotten caught in uh, some some tough switches throughout the year, and it's just, I don't know, it just kept happening over and over again. Let's go to option uh, number two. Well, that's another option. Stop switching everything. Option number three. How about zone? How about zone? Dude yeah. hasn't played a lot of zone, but that's an option. Show wake something different. Who knows? Maybe it would have failed miserably. Maybe it would have worked. At least it would have been different. It's not getting beat the same way every time. Definition of crazy, doing something over and over and over again the same way, expecting different results. Didn't Different results didn't occur. So that's uh, And then the last option, I, t- I talked a lot about Jack White on the previous episode in terms of why Jack White is unlikely to get minutes over Wendell Moore and why he may not get be getting minutes overall, even though I, I really respected him and gave him credit and really appreciated what he's done this season in terms of be a coach on the floor and be so good in talking and really help the team early on in the season. This is a game when I thought at least if, not, if Matthew Hurt can't do anything, to stop SAR, and you're just gonna play SAR straight up, with maybe potentially helping on doubles, if the doubles came more aggressively. If Matthew Hurt's not stopping him all, at least Jack Jack White, while not having as much size, he's about a thousand times more physical. And I mean, if nothing else, he could he had plenty of fouls to give. So unless you're so concerned about what Matthew Hurt can do on offense, and he wasn't doing a whole ton, I mean what what he did at least it's because of how – I'll talk about Duke's offense in a second, but it was because Duke's offense was so vanilla. That probably is why Hurt was out there because at least he can kind of, with his height, just kind of step back and hit his own shot and occasionally take it off the bounce. Jack White is not able to do that. I still would probably prioritize – or not always, but especially in this game, prioritize the defense. And I thought Jack White, if nothing else, could have been physical – and I think the bottom line is the point I'm making
1: overall. Where was the plan B? I don't, I, well, I don't, yeah, there was no plan B, but there, there wasn't a whole lot of time to really implement a plan B considering how the wheels fell off of this one. Now, granted, there were overtimes. I, I, I do get that. But, it's not like when you're up by nine with uh, with six, you, you don't really think about implementing a plan B. The plan B is don't turn the ball over twice. You know at the end at the end of regulation there, if they don't turn the ball over twice, we walk walk away with the W. Um, and uh, and so yeah, you're right. I mean when you get into overtime, we you know it's okay. We didn't win the game. We're gonna go into overtime here, and we've got five minutes to play solid. Yes, implement your plan B. I agree, and I don't know what that plan B was, or if they, or, or, or if they, or, or if they even had one, or why Jack White wasn't involved in it when three, when the three frontline players fouled out. But, but all this to say, Trey Jordan, don't turn the ball over with the game on the line uh, in, in less than twenty seconds, and we're and we're and we're you know onto Virginia. That's absolutely true. But yeah,
0: I mean, in terms of what happened before that, it kind of led to momentum that made it yeah, well, possible. But what you're saying is true. That's why I started off the episode by saying that those those uh, 79 seconds or whatever that is going to be. Anyone can al- can always go to that, whether it's you, whether it's me, and just say, well, you know what? If they didn't completely melt down, nothing else would matter. And I and there's no argument for me with that. You're right. That can be said at any point in time. Anything I mention about this game, you can bring it back to those, uh, to that period of time, that range of time, and say, yeah, if they had just stopped in there, then nothing else would have mattered. And Duke played well enough, even if not great, but well enough to win.
1: Well, but what I'm saying is specifically your question was what was the plan B? I'm saying I agree with you. There's a lot more to the game than those 79 seconds. I completely agree. But what I'm saying is there's really no time to implement a plan B when things just derail in a minute. You know, that's why there was no plan B. It's because Duke didn't think they needed their plan B because, because of how that final minute went. That's all.
0: that that could could very well be true and I hope it isn't because I think no matter what K should always have a plan B and I think with his experience I would be shocked if he didn't have a plan B I think if he didn't have a plan B I'd be shocked if his assistants didn't have a plan B I mean there's plenty of people with plenty of experience in huge games uh, both pro, both college, every type Olympics, I mean everything so I would very much doubt a plan B didn't exist. I think it's just a matter of... They thought, you know, it would just... You know what? We'll just hang on. And yeah that, that's the thing about this team is just kind of going with what is good enough is really risky for them because this team always has the potential to kind of well enough may melt down because they need your help. They need that fluid adaptation. They don't have guys like like an rj bear you can just give the ball to at the end of games and he'll just make a play even if no one else is even when you have those types of teams i mean when Kay talks about playing young last year's team stunk down the stretch it's not like they turned it over a bunch they just miss free throws every single close game they bottom line though they got lucky there's a lot of randomness that can happen with close games so do you want the game to depend on randomness you don't. You want it you want to keep it at a distance and you obviously want to kind of really put the game away. I think that was the issue that they didn't put the game away. And when you don't put the game away and when you give a team confidence, then who knows what could happen. Anything can happen when you give a team confidence. With the miracle minute, I think I've mentioned this before. Nobody remembers that it started when Steve Blake fouled out, who was completely shutting down Jay Williams. All that people remember is Jay Williams did it. But that's kind of That's what caused it. And Duke was a lot more versus Wake Forest before everything. It wasn't just one certain situation. I I mentioned the points per possession. That was a lot of possessions that came before that final minute. But at at the same time, I don't know. With what what Sar was doing, just dominating, it gave him confidence. It gave him the ability to kind of get on a run. What also gave him that ability is now Duke's offense because – You look at around that same time I mentioned, the under 11, uh, or I'm sorry, under 12 timeout, Duke was rolling on offense, especially Cassius Stanley. Cassius Stanley, he made a, a bunch of big, here we go, like 14.59 dished off to Wendell. And Cassius isn't great at making plays for others, so I thought that was big of him, even though Wendell was wide open underneath. I think Cassius can be a bit one dimensional, so I really love the fact that he created for Wendell at the rim. Then, I mean, just right here, his tip on defense over two dudes. He grabbed a rebound on defense over two, over two guys. Um, and then reverses the process by dunking home Vern's miss from Trey's feed in transition. Catches his rebound. He tipped to Vern for the rebound. Then he dunked home Vern's miss from Trey's feed in transition. Huge, huge kind of excitement type of play. Gets everyone amped. Another ridiculous defensive rebound at 13.05. Step back at 11.50, which he really hasn't done much of off the bounce outside of kind of floaters going to the rim. So Cassius was going nuts. Yeah. What, what happened the rest of the game on offense with Cassius? There was one play when I, he tried to go full court, uh, missed missed a kind of a runner in transition. Then he missed a, a three off Trey's feed once. That was it. So you're having a guy that's really taking over, really providing energy. And he just stops existing at that point. He was still doing his usual on defense, locking down. I mean, he, no, he was. He was amazing, except for one uh, Shondi Brown uh, runner, I believe. I mean, Cassius was just fantastic. But on offense, it's almost like they stopped realizing he existed. And it was just that kind of, as I mentioned before, that secondary break, which guys just kind of have their assignments. And Cassius' assignment in that situation is usually go to the corner which isn't the most exciting assignment. I mean, they stopped running everything. Everything. It was basically just horn sets with Trey going ISO, Wendell rolling to the rim, and Hurt popping out on repeat. Rinse, repeat, every single time. Nothing changed, ever. And when they scored, most of it was in transition. I mean, their transition was impressive. Uh, 23 possessions in the game, 36 points, 11 of 14 uh, shooting, and... half court was better they weren't relying so much until down the stretch and that's when it became completely one dimensional
1: and they were money from the free throw line that also kept them in the game I think they were 31 out of 34 if I mean you can't you can't ask for much but you can't ask for really any better than that and uh, that kept them in the game now I know that that wake uh, I I think wake I think wake was like 38 out of 50 um, which is also excellent but You tell me the Duke's going to hit 31 out of 34 free throws. I'm going to say we're going to win that game. Yeah, that's what I
0: said last time. Like, the Duke's free throw shooting, it's kind of on and off, and I can't really base it on anything. I can't either. It's not not pressure. It's not, like, I mean, Vern is a bit up and down, but the rest of the guys, it's kind of, I think one of the most fascinating things about Wendell Moore and what I think, I do a lot of draft stuff, what I think uh, bodes well for his future or what people might think of his potential is the fact that, with guys that don't shoot real well from outside, from the perimeter, and his motion, it's, it's never the motion that I focus on too much. It's the fact that it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, you want it consistent. And his, uh, his motion and release is far from that. His elbow uh, gets in a lot, or I'm sorry, his elbow flails out. So, and it just looks different every time, but his free throws, that's money. So when you look at a guy like that, when, whenever somebody who shoots free throws well, struggling from outside, I think it gives you hope for a young guy that he can really develop into a better perimeter shooter, even if not great. It's when guys struggle from the free throw line as well, that's when it's just this guy is not too great a shooter. But Wendell, 14 of 15 from the line, really consistent, and just provided absolutely huge impact. I mean, especially when you think about some of these random plays that Duke was able to score on down the stretch, it wasn't based on like what you would consider quality basketball. It's Trey um, going down the lane, losing the ball, and, w- and Wendell just picking up the loose ball, scoring at the rim and one. It's Trey kind of throwing up a desperation heave as the shot clock is about to expire. Matthew Hurt catching it in the air, putting it in and one. These are not plays which you, th- you would say are drawn up in the book or are repeatable. Right. These are just random things. I mean, and some of the fouls that they were getting they were getting the calls on. And that is not to say, I mean, there were some fouls which went Wake's way, which uh, there there were some interesting ones. But bottom line, I don't think there was too many fouls that went kind of to the point of how is that being called. I mean, Javin had uh, one where it's just like, why is this a foul? Uh, I think Vern, his fifth foul, was not great. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess with him, with the fifth foul, I mean, considering how important he is, that should be more of a point to make. But at the same time, I mentioned before how with me, I guess everyone else, like each foul kind of is its own world. With me, though, it, it frustrates me to see guys just give away fouls early on. And I wouldn't say they deserve fouls later because of it. But at the same time, like you got to understand how important you are and not commit those early fouls because you don't want to leave it up to, in the ref's hands. Yeah. I thought uh, Wendell was, was mostly great as usual on defense, except for what I talked about in terms of the Dublin. I think Wendell, he kind of he, – he wasn't as definitive as he needs to be in terms of doubling. I think that's going to be the biggest defensive thing I take out of this. Obviously, who was playing the five and what was going on with that with Sar? I mean, Sar scored the mass majority of their points until Childress got hot. And, he, and even then, a lot of it was free throws. Yeah, I mean, when, when you have the offense getting stagnant, when it, it kind of drains you of energy. And that can affect the defense. So I feel like there is a symbiotic nature to it. I think it did. One thing affected the other, and that's why a guy like Justin Robinson came in and had that big impact. When, when he came in, Duke immediately went on like an 11-3 run, and, and it looked good. I mean, with the under-12 timeout, everything looked pretty much good. All right, so it's time to get to that those 70 seconds. Let's uh, start off with you, Greg. Greg. Um, were you, were you almost ready to turn the TV off expect not turn TV off but kind of drink a victory beer or kind of drink a victory chocolate milk or water whatever you drank uh when Duke wins
1: there, there's no doubt it, and um, and I wouldn't be that way against a different opponent and that and I hate to to be disrespectful to wake Forest because they're completely deserving of winning if it was a uh if it was um you know Kansas or uh, or one of the upper echelon teams I would not Uh, be lighting up my victory cigar, but I, I, but I said to myself, we're up, we're up, uh, we're up this, we're at Wake Forest. We seem to have things under control. We also weathered a storm. Do you know what I mean? Like we like, we took the blow. We, the fact that it was tied at halftime was baffling to me. And, um, after how, how well, or I think Wake took a 12 point lead in the first half. And the fact that we got it all back before the second half and then took our own 12 point lead. So we had outscored them, you know, by 24, um, you know, and um, and seemed like, alright, we had spotted them twelve points, but now this is this is this is who Duke is and this is who Wake is. So yes, the long answer to your question is I was lighting the victory cigar. I didn't obviously stop watching, but I uh, but um I had no I had no doubt that uh, that Duke was going to be able to, to, to pull this through. I was wrong.
0: I mean bottom line, Wake is what it is. Like it's yeah. I don't think it's disrespectful just kinda of call it out. As it is, Wake is not a good team this season. Yeah, and I think what did they lost like three games in a row, maybe four games in a row. Like they are who they are. So yeah. well, you can give them credit for the win. I don't know how. Like it's tough, man, because I mean, all it was was a couple minutes. You never, you never know. It wasn't like I mean, UNC's meltdown was like a slow burn. I mean, you UN, because UNC lost. I mean, they missed free throw after free throw. You can kind of feel it coming. It's almost the same way as like the the Austin Rivers game. You can kind of, you can kind of feel it coming. It was almost uh, inevitable. It almost seemed like at times, this just happened all of a sudden. All right. So, and let's let's discuss. Why don't teams press Duke more? I think to, I think for me, I think it's reputation almost, because. I think many just assume Duke, hey, they're, they're, they're good. They're, they're, they have the ball handlers. They got Trey, and they got uh, Wendell Moore. They got Cassius. They got Jordan Goldwire. They're almost playing with uh, four types of guards who can handle the ball without actually exactly looking right. deeper. And it ain't like that because Trey's really the only one who seems to be able to consistently handle pressure. I discussed this way back in Georgetown. Georgetown was the first team to uh, actually press Duke. And I, I remember I actually apologized after that podcast because I'd mentioned like the uh, potential of everything Duke would go against. I actually hadn't mentioned what would happen if a team would press Duke. Georgetown did. Duke did not handle it well. Not many teams have. I'm I, I, I'm not sure how much Florida State did. Florida State, their team, that presses all the time, and I can't remember them doing a whole bunch of times. Maybe I'm misremembering. But I'm just. It surprises me that teams don't press Duke more because they're not great. And did and it worked. And because Wendell Moore, his obsession with trying to split double teams or just dribbling right into double teams is tough. Uh, Jordan Goldwire, sometimes he can look like a deer in the headlights at times. Love the guy. But at the same time, he, do, he doesn't exactly he, – he's he's had some issues against uh, the press in the past. And Stanley, they really don't even give an opportunity to do much ball handling. So it's pretty much comes down to Trey. So they give to Wendell. Wendell just straight loses it. Yep. So, um, then Neath goes in, hits a layup. Foul Stanley. Really consistent free throw shooter. This is the only one which isn't a turnover. He hits one of two. And, well, you wouldn't say, oh, no, because, uh, hey, Duke's still up five with 44 seconds left. Still, I mean, it's under a minute. You want to hit hit those. It makes you kind of remember Carolina and all the free throws they missed. Then uh, you get, you get Saar, who, who, uh, who gets a dunk, and all of a sudden... Getting nervous,
1: especially how easy it came. About. I'm sorry. Yeah, that and was a, that so, was the dunk I was talking about with uh, where Hurt doubled off of him and left him all by himself. Um, and uh, and you know, with the game on the line, that was just inexcusable. That's where the plan B really needed to come.
0: So then Gold Goldwire, he ends up with the turnover, but it's actually after he almost turned it over the first time, just passing it right to the center. Like, and it was almost stolen then, and then he turns it over after that. So, I mean, you can tell this isn't just, like, random things. He almost turned it over first, then he turns it over after that. So, I mean, you yeah, kinda, I wanted to ask, now it's I wanted giving to ask you that deer-in-the-headlights type of thing.
1: I wanted to ask you about that. It Didn't it appear as though he'd taken his eye off the ball and it sort of hit him in the face a little bit, right? Um, no, this is the possession before. Oh, that was the possession before that? My apologies.
0: No, it's fine. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, then you're getting worried because... Uh, What happens? You have a guy that is 0 for 10 who takes Goldwire's turnover, comes right back, and hits a 3. That almost reminded me of Mario Chalmers. And that's not good at that point. So after all that, now it's tied. So all it took was Moore's turnover, layup. You got Stanley 1 for 2, then a dunk. Then you got Goldwire, and then a three-pointer, and then the guy who hit the three-pointer is the guy who needed to really break the ice more than anyone. So I don't know. So then you got the you you want to talk about the play you were mentioning?
1: Well, I um, the way I remembered it um, was the uh, I thought that the next play I mean uh, Childress hit the three with um, with about with uh, with about 17 seconds left, and then um, and then I thought Trey Jones committed the offensive foul at that point.
0: Oh, maybe you know what? Okay, you were I right about, about Goldwire. Yep. Yeah, you know what? I apologize because Cassius. Yeah, it was Cassius to Goldwire, and Goldwire did take his eye off. You're absolutely right. I apologize. And that's
1: what happened, right? That, that's okay. That's what that's what happened, right? It kind of hit him in the face, right? He took his eye off the ball for a second. That's what led to the turnover, right? Is, am I remembering that correctly?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely remembering that right. Uh, yeah. Exactly, correctly, and yeah. uh, and and that's where you can kind of become that Monday morning quarterback, which is never oh. never a good thing. Where you watch that play again. With Cassius dribbling down, and you see Matthew Hurt just streaking to the rim with literally no one around him. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, oh, Cassius, just give it to him, dunk, so kind of a celebratory dunk game over. You yeah, can't but, blame also, but also. for giving it to somebody who's wide open, who is a, uh, a supposedly a ball handler you can trust. So I don't know. I mean, I can't blame him for that, but at the same time, watching Hurt, nobody around him, it's, it's, it's a bit tough, but again, no blame for
1: Cassius. Agreed, but I'll echo what Krzyzewski said in the post-game press conference and I don't know if he was referring to that play or if he was referring to the Wendell Moore uh, play um, Trey needs to have the ball in these situations Trey needs to have the ball So
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I mean Trey needs to get the ball I think that's yeah. the bottom line You can say everyone else needs to give him the ball He needs to get it, he needs to demand it because this is a team that needs him to take control to really grab the bull by the horns. I mean, even something as small as uh, something I saw, I don't know if anyone else did, probably not. Maybe it wasn't a big deal. Maybe it's just something I'm, I am I kind of focused on a little too much, but I think it matters. When Cassius, uh, when he missed that first free throw, do you remember what happened? No. What happened was everybody thought it, w- it was a one and one So they grabbed the everyone started to go, and Trey kind of, he, st- he stopped and he was like, no, no, it's it's, it's good. But everybody shouldn't think it's a it's a uh, it's a one and one. Trey Trey needs to call that out beforehand. I don't care about what Wake Wake wants them to think. Wake's playing mind games. So Trey needs to be a leader. Tell everyone the situation. Be that coach on the floor and tell them nobody should not be quite sure. And while that's possibly unfair to put that on Trey's shoulders. I don't know. I mean. You could say, uh, hey, LeBron, he's a great leader. J.R. Smith had no idea what was going on. I'm sure yeah. many remember that. So you can only control so much. And yeah. you know what? For all I know, Trey did tell him. Huh. But it sure seemed like nobody knew. And I feel like it, it if not necessary, it would be a really good thing for Trey, especially with guys, a lot of young guys, just kind of command the troops. So sure. may, maybe they meant nothing. Maybe they meant something. Whatever. All right, so we get to uh, the Trey Jones offensive turnover, which I think at first glance, most thought that it was actually on Goldwire. I think the mass majority thought even – definitely the uh, broadcasters thought it was on Goldwire because Goldwire kind of turned in, looked like he just leveled the opponent. But then when you actually slow it down and watch uh, – they, they showed a replay on, on a different angle. Trey actually uh, jerks the defender's arm. Yeah. So it, it was on Trey, which was kind of surprising because uh, – I don't know. Maybe it's all a blur from when I watched last night. But when I I was looking down the play by play, I'm like, "What? They called that on Trey? I thought that was on Goldwire." But no, it, it, to me, it looked like the right call.
1: It did look like the right call. And I'm, you know, in a way, I'm almost glad they made it because I would have hated hearing about how Duke gets all the calls. If they didn't call that, you know, once again. So um, yeah, I mean, it's but it, tough it, it was it, it was the right call.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely the right call. It's a tough call to make in that situation, but you can't argue whether it was the right call by the books, it's just, man, it, like just to give away that possession, that's tough. I mean, but it's like you have all, it's kind of like holding in football where it can go any sort, any way. They can call a penalty any time they want. And there is one one guy who, just a quick aside, uh, Wendell Moore, they could literally call foul on him every time he draws. He's got to chill out with the shoulder. How we <laughs> how, how, how really just kind of barrels his shoulder into guys, and it's not kind of secretive in any way. And once everyone kind of starts knowing his game, they can make it more obvious. They can kind of sell it more and make it more uh, easy to call. He got a lot of free throws, and I I would say he deserved them. But at the same time, he relies way too much on getting the call without any attempt to actually convert on a lot of his drives. And often he's out of control, so he needs to kind of clean that up. Easier said than done. He's got he's got to watch out because Trey, there's little tricks of the trade. I mean, Trey, you can tell he's learned a lot from his brother. Some aspects of what he does, that kind of he he has a really good kind of neck neck snap that he does, which can sell it pretty well. He tripped on on a, on a couple down the stretch where he got the call. Some of them could have gone either way, but at the same time, there's a lot of fouls called in this game. a lot of free throw shot. It wasn't wasn't exactly uh a dream to watch down the stretch. And when people say oh, there's so many fouls called one way or the other, a lot of it was just kind of extending the game in certain sure. ways. Again, it's the early fouls in the game. Those are the ones that really caught my eye. But Great. uh yeah, I mean I mean once that happened in the, in the first overtime, it was just the entire thing was really Secondary break and uh, Wendell Moore kind of take took it took it coast to coast a couple times. It was really no sense of offense. It was Trey just going ISO whenever anything would happen or Matthew Hurt trying something. There's nothing going on. There's no offense, and then Wake would just do whatever they wanted. Childress was on fire. Yeah, I mean I mean it was pretty brutal. I mean Sar was still going off, and the defense was melting down. I mean a lot of it was free throws. A lot of it was p- putting in the refs' hands. And you just got to you gotta trust the defense. And I don't think the defense could be trusted this game once Vernon Carey went out. And it changed the way Wake played in terms of playing around Saar. In terms of basing their offense around SAR, And Duke never made an adjustment. If they did, I wasn't, I'm not quite sure what that was. Because it wasn't exactly like... I mean, at least at NC State, there was aspects to it, which I mentioned in terms of what they were doing in the first half. And then when Cassius came in, that shut it all down. Then it was just pretty much offensive rebounding in the second half. I mean, Wake, they just beat Duke from the post over and over. And then when Childress started getting going, he, he, he did his thing off the pick and roll. As I said, a lot of times off the uh, horn sets, same type of stuff Duke uses, but Duke didn't, didn't have the ability to use it with the big. So here's what I'm wondering. How come, I mean, you saw what uh, Wake did. When Vern was in foul trouble, what did Wake do? They went at Vern, right? Yeah. Get him out. How come Duke didn't go at Sar?
1: Well, I mean, Sar, Sar's seven foot. Uh, he was playing an amazing game, and he was, he, was, he, was getting, uh, he was getting clean block after clean block. He was, he was playing defense without fouling uh it must be really intimidating to go in at somebody like that um and uh come away with a an empty possession over and over and over again i mean you, the the right thing to do is to go at him you're absolutely right but at the same time you know it has it, got to get frustrating because uh the guy was really really difficult to uh to uh to get the call on cuz he was playing clean defense
0: i mean he's very foul prone this season very very foul prone he's been foul prone his career i mean that's what i'm saying at the start about how he he could just stay on the court I mean, he, even, even this game, 30 minutes you're, where he was you're dominating.
1: Right. You're right. But, but not in this game. Like, you know, I mean, like you said earlier t- tonight, you got to take these things on a game to game basis. And tonight, I mean, he just played inspired defense. He really did.
0: Yeah. I don't think they went at him enough. So I think there could be, he did, he did play well at the same time. I think Duke could have done more to make him uncomfortable. I just—I yeah. don't think they really tried much to get him in foul trouble. I mean, run the pick and roll right at him. Right. I mean, there, there's many different there's many different aspects. I mean, Duke wasn't running anything, so it's tough to go at a player when basically it's just nonstop ISO. Right. I mean, unless you just want to kind of angle yourself. I mean, it's just it's very—I don't know. It was just all stagnant. All right. So the last thing I'll mention is in terms of the lineups. When you have certain guys, like when when Wake was playing their zone, you got one of the best uh, zone beaters in the country in Joey Baker. What, do you get a minute? If, if that, like not much at all. And, I mean, like Jack White didn't get any time. This this is outside of the zone. Um, Jack White didn't get much time. where O'Connell get a couple minutes? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that, like basically, they went 12 deep, and yet – it got stagnant like that shouldn't happen. I mean, yeah, there were the three bigs who fouled out, but at the same time, I felt like this is the type of team that needs energy injected into them. It's tough to just see the same lineup over and over and over. At least put White in there. Maybe let's see what he can do.
1: They, they went 12 deep, but Delorier, White and Baker combined for seven minutes. Yeah, so, I mean, Javin
0: couldn't have played more. Javin, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he equaled his minutes and fouls.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I just felt like, by my whether it was rotations, whether it was trying di- different ways to defend the post, whether it was the offense trying to be effective in half court in any possible way besides just Trey and the Horn sometimes with Vern and hopefully, like, I mean, Wendell was pretty much all transition and and offensive rebound second chance. So it's about considering what's going to happen with the NCAA tournament. There's going to be a game like this with a team that just hangs around and gets momentum. So are you just going to let them dictate? Because that can be what happens. Typically it's one guy who gets hot and then you don't make an adjustment. I mean, because, yeah, it was Sar who just kept on really keeping them in the game, leading them on a comeback, and then their dude Childress finally got it going. While Shawnee Brown, I think what what he does, especially in the first half, goes under the radar. And they have a couple guys doing kind of contributing here and there. I mean, everyone against Hurt basically contributed whenever they were against Hurt. I mean, that's the thing with Matthew Hurt that – it, I mean, seeing him against Wake was one of the more frustrating times because I always say he's situational. and I, I like the way he was aggressive against uh, against Virginia Tech, but at the same time, I made it very clear that was a good matchup, and I don't i, I, I there is no guarantee for another one. So the hurt defensive worry is not going away, and I don't know what to do about that. The only other thing is uh, the here here is one other. Random, random stop before I close it out, because I think we've pretty much gone into everything that is necessary in terms of the ball handlers during that stretch. I think that, yeah, there was just some freak things in terms of Goldwire taking his eye off the ball. I mean, what are you going to say? He needs to keep his eye on the ball. I'm pretty sure he (laughs) understands that. I mean, with Wendell, that's been going on the whole season. I'm, I would tr- I would give Cassius a, more of an opportunity to at least handle the ball in that situation. Not necessarily bring it up the court. Because a lot of time. it's just Wendell initiating at that point and trying to make something happen. While Wendell can really contribute in many areas, as an initiator, it's still kind of hit and miss. So Cassius, even if he misses, I think it's just about what's going to be the worst that can happen. And Cassius, he may turn it over sometimes, but it's not going to – I think the turnover rate, you don't have to worry about quite as much with Cassius. And I hate to say, like, just kind of lesser of two – I don't want to say evils, but with Cassius, I don't think there's as much potential for disaster. Uh, So I would would give Cassius a little more opportunity. Other than that, I mean, yeah, you can just say get the ball in Trey's hands, but I think that's pretty obvious and guys need to understand that and i think the main thing i said that's very clear is he's got to get the ball he can't let the ball come to him he's got to go get it he's got to understand that vern's got to be on the court he's got to understand that he does these are all very things that are blatantly obvious these guys know it it's not like hey you got to practice being on the court more it's just uh yeah just watch out for those silly fouls always say that duke's three-point rate is one of the most amazing things about this team how teams like they don't even let them shoot threes against them their three best three-point rates of the season have been 13.5 percent 16.2 percent and 18.3 percent oh i'm sorry there's also 17.4 um so 17.4 is north carolina i'll wipe that one out (laughs) so but the other three 13.5 16.2 and 18.3 Those were against Stephen F. Austin, NC State, and Wake Forest.
1: Interesting. That is interesting.
0: It is very weird. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Stephen F. austin they only made two of ten from deep, Mm -hmm. but you got these teams that barely even get an opportunity, and they're not, like, wide open when they shoot. They just have these games where they're just very efficient, even without shooting many. So it's odd, and when Duke goes down, that seemed to be... What happens a weird amount of time in terms of teams not shooting a lot and making a very high percentage? Like, NC State, 8 for 13. Wake Forest, 6 of 11. Louisville, 7 of 14. I mean, like, they're not allowing teams to shoot many, and they're not wide open, like I said. It's just sometimes the basketball guys, just the shots go in. I don't know what to really say about that, because they're not giving up high percentages on twos. Uh, extending out on on threes and selling out for threes and allowing the twos so it's it, I wouldn't say that Duke is really good split between th- uh, threes and twos in terms of how well they play defense it's just one of those weird stats that I would say
1: do you by any chance have their worst um, uh, th- three point percentage not uh, made but uh percentage of of shots handy they' their, their worst
0: yeah the three point most, I mean I mean some of these like I, I would say can be affected by garbage time with, with sure. some of the games because, like, teams are just chucking at the end. like, I'm looking through this. Uh, here. like, yeah, the two worst are Wofford and Colorado State. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. In terms of an actual competitive game, see, even on this one, Syracuse, they were just chucking at the end. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, going, going through, whenever it's been any sort of close game, I mean, Virginia Tech ha- had a somewhat high – uh, Yeah, they really haven't even given up, like, 30 versus any game that was somewhat uh-huh. close. They're still not turning teams over. The turnover rate, 12.6%, and it's, I mean, it's a consistent thing now. As I said, the national turnover is 19%. The last three games have been 13, 11, and 12.6, and they've only been above 19, like, two out of the last uh, – over 10 games and one of them barely that was against UNC steel rate, nothing, not, nothing great. I mean, it was a little bit higher against wake forest, but still they, they need to get those turnovers. They need, it's not just about getting easier points. That's obvious. It's about energy about finding a way to energize the team. And that's something that like Justin Robinson, what he did, it'll just be marked down as a block in the stat in the stats, but it energized the team just getting these guys out and running that's huge, especially when they're running such a vanilla offense in half court. They need energy whenever they can get it. Second chance points, I mean, the offensive rebounding wasn't great. I mean, this is against a team that allows you that turns it over, that gives up offensive rebounds. This is a team you're supposed to do it. The defensive efficiency, the two worst defensive efficiency of the season for Duke are now Wake Forest and NC State. So, let me ask you... Uh, the same question that i find horrible and hmm. i would be i would be angry if anyone asked me do you think duke has the ability to fix it and do you think they will fix it
1: well here's what i'll say um, i just think that the uh, that you can learn a little bit more from this game than you can from the from the the nc state game for instance i think that that um, this can't happen again and it won't happen again and so i like i said at the beginning of the cast i I actually grab i actually take more positives out of this game uh than i do negatives uh like i said there was a uh there was a spark in in justin robinson that duke had found uh when played great he's still a little bit out of control but um but but uh you know i think he i think he is so focused on the defensive end um stanley on the defensive end uh carrie stays out of foul trouble you know uh he's incredible you know you know what he's capable of doing and we and we know that Duke can win super close games we know that Duke can play with anybody and we also know that Duke knows that they can be had and when you're aware of that that you can be had I think you can pay dividends in the long run and I don't think that they necessarily thought that they were going to lose that game and that's why they got sloppy they are too well coached to have something like this happen again for the rest of the season so I think they will fix it yes
0: I'm not I'm not going to be recording. They're playing a Saturday, Monday turnaround. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to record after the Monday game. Mm-hmm. What what do you think uh how do you think we'll be feeling? Is it going to be oh no, we're gonna... we've totally um let's bury our head in the ground or hey, it, everything wasn't all bad at hope?
1: No, we're going to win both of those games and um and I'm I'm actually I'm actually very confident in that. I I felt confident about the um about the Virginia NC state games more so than actually the wake forest game. Um, the wake forest game, they really, they, they're, they they do not have any postseason hopes. This is basically their season right here. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, they beat North Carolina and they beat Duke this year. So more power to them. This is, a, this is a team that, you know, when they get hot, they can be a little bit dangerous, but they have no postseason hopes unless they win five games in five days in the ACC tournament. Um, that's a that that can be a dangerous team. Virginia is going to the tournament. Uh, State's on the bubble. Um, Duke's gonna learn from this, and uh, and we're gonna talk again on uh, on uh, next Tuesday uh, with two more victories.
0: All right. So this is the tenth leap year that Coach K has uh, played during his tenure. Hmm. To, what, what is your guess? How many? Uh, the Virginia game will be the number blank out of ten. Uh, he's played on February 29th.
1: Oh, that, that he's played, or that they? What's the record?
0: How many games? They, if you want to say the record too, oh, if you want to, man, oh. I mean, first you got to
1: okay come okay, up well, with how many okay. games have
0: they played on February 29th?
1: Okay, well then they probably only had about. I'm gonna say six.
0: And uh, Virginia will be the third. Oh, okay.
1: So I'm gonna so say they're That
0: about once every three years, I guess, a little bit. And
1: I'm gonna uh, set I'm gonna uh, right
0: two so, and zero. You're saying two and zero. They are one and one. They oh. lost at home to Clemson, I believe that was. I don't have it in front of me. I believe that was like 1983 or something. No, it was 1984. I think they actually like lost by one, like 77-76, something like that. Then mm-hmm. in 2004, they won at FSU, 70 mm-hmm. to 65. Mm-hmm. So they are one and one. They have won on the road. They have lost at home, ten years apart, and now from 2004 this is another bunch of years apart from that so this is only the third time they have played on february 29th at virginia virginia games have a tendency to be pretty intense do you think leap year holds any sort of value none No. I would I would agree. I don't think it matters at all. I just think it's no. interesting because of I mean how rare it is. I mean for forty yeah. years this is forty first year. Um, so only, only this is will be his third time. He is one and one. Hopefully he can come out with a Saturday to Monday turnaround because this is, this is this is getting into it. If they don't have at least at least they got to win at least one of these games. then mm-hmm. Virginia would be a quality win. Because losing to two unranked teams by double digits, it it doesn't look good. I I don't know how, whatever the committee does or anything like that. Bottom line, it doesn't look good just as a basketball team. So uh, that's how I take it. And uh, you got Florida State just had a huge win. I will say I haven't watched as many games as usual national um, and ACC, but what I saw with Florida State and Louisville, and uh, if anyone, I'm sure most people have seen, Malik Williams, He's he hurt his ankle, but supposedly he is good, and they don't they have a bit of a break, I believe. But, uh, we, I mean, Louisville really struggled without Malik Williams. But bottom line, I rarely say, I mean, this isn't even a player of the game. Or, I mean, if you want to say the 12th man, the Florida State crowd was unbelievable. I, that's the best crowd I've seen this year. It's the loudest crowd I've seen this year from the opening tip. That was absolutely incredible. And I just want to say props to the FSU fans. I'm not saying they're usually bad. It's just the best I have ever seen from FSU. The most intense, unbelievable. I mean, that is a college basketball atmosphere for all college basketball atmospheres. Amazing. Really fun game to watch.
1: Good for them, and that team deserves it. That team deserves it. I I really like that team, and I'm I'm, I'm happy for Leonard Hamilton. I really am.
0: I also forgot to mention on the last podcast – There's a third player that I did forget to mention in terms of somebody who's really stepped up their game recently. Not for a team that's uh, in the uh, NCAA competition for the NCAA tournament as much. But at the same time, Isaiah Wong deserves props. And if you look at his stats, he he really didn't do much at all. He scored like 10 points in like the last 10 games before he played Dukes or 8 points or something. Wasn't doing much. And then played Duke eight points showed some potential. Since then, dude is balling out, averaging about seventeen and a half points per game for Miami. It's been named ACC Player of the Week for a couple times. But I just wanted to make sure that I gave Isaiah Wong his due. Really bright future for Miami. I can't wait to see him next year.
1: Um, I have a I have a quick stat to throw at you though. I was gonna, I have a quick little piece of trivia for you.
0: The answer is three. <laughs> <I'm sorry.
1: laughs> in the in in Duke's five championship seasons can you tell me how many teams they lost to in those championship seasons that didn't make that year's ncaa tournament
0: 2010 they lost five games i believe in 2015 they lost they lost five games as well
1: Uh, i don't want to you know it's 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 a tough guessing game but the the point is in the in the five championship years they lost they lost to two two teams that didn't actually end up making the ncaa tournament in 2010, uh, they lost to NC State, uh, who went to the NIT. And in 2015, they got crushed by Miami, if you remember, um, at Cameron. And, uh, and and that's the only time it's happened. And the only reason I bring that up is because this year, whew, I mean, Stephen F. Austin has to win their tournament to go. And they should. They're the best team in the Southland. But you know how these things go. The best team doesn't always win that conference tournament. So if, uh, so if Stephen F. Austin does not win that tournament, uh, I don't think they're going to go. Uh, I don't think Clemson's going. Uh, Louisville will go. Uh, NC State's on the bubble, and Wake isn't going. So this would be a very interesting season um, if Duke were to cut down the nets, uh, in that they lost to so many teams that aren't even going to play in the postseason. Anyway, I just thought I just thought that was interesting. I thought it, I thought I'd bring that up to you.
0: Yeah, I just looked it up. I, I, yeah, Miami. I thought they made it. Yeah, they got to the final of the NIT that, that year, two thousand fifteen. So yeah. good for them. But yeah, I mean, this Duke team. I mean, that's why. I will say this as carefully as I can. I, I, I love when like every every single person who comes on. Let like many most people I see, and uh, for great reason, they really believe Duke can play with anyone. I haven't quite. I think Duke is a, is a, is a solid team. I haven't quite seen it like that this year, and uh, I'm I'm still not sure if they can take the next step. There's a reason I compare them to 2007. I think Vern is the team is the player who can raise their level. And despite everyone kind of almost treating college basketball like a holy grail, if you say it's a down season, you're just you're a hater. How could you do? How could you say something like it? Look, bottom line. I love college basketball. It's a down season. I don't care what you have to say. And while there's still some very good teams, it like I don't think it's possible. At least I will say this. At least the ACC is having a down season right there. That is inarguable. And I don't care how many teams make it. If you watch the games, it's a down season. Still quality, but a down season. And it was tough to to really tell. How Duke was when you're not matched up against quality opponents, mm-hmm. and I mentioned how they were they only played like a couple top fifty games. And I've made it clear that Kansas I don't even count because the first game of the season I don't count no matter who it's against. And I'll repeat as I always do: the uh, the Champions Classic should be the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl. I think that would be perfect, but I understand why it won't be money. But at the, like first game of the season, it's just meaningless in terms of the result. But that doesn't take away from the fact it's fun, but the result is meaningless. So I don't even consider them. And, I mean, you got Michigan State and uh, Louisville and Florida State. Those those are basically the big games. I mean, in terms of teams that will make the NCAA tournament, I mean, as you said, State's on the bubble. You got Georgetown on the bubble, I would say, probably a little bit below right now. I mean, when you don't play a lot of teams who are going to test you, at least in the way you feel like, they are a the type of team who could test the majority of uh, top teams. It's t- it's tough to tell. And then when Duke starts kind of faltering down the stretch, may- it makes you wonder because this is a team where you weren't quite sure. And then as the season gets closer, are they are they, uh, are they getting worse? So that's why I say keep it fluid. The adjustments, the the, the adaptation. You get, you got to make ju- adjustments in game. There has to be a plan B. There has to be a plan C, and if there is not, this team is going to get beat because they are not the type of team you can just put the ball in their hands and say go get it. You can try to do that with Trey, and it may work out at times. You've seen miracles happen, but you get you got to help this team out in order to help in order for them to reach their potential, whatever that potential is. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Hopefully, it's more than what I feel. I would love to see that. But at the same time, this team has some weaknesses, and uh, yeah, they they are a team that I feel there could be some uh, interesting matchups in the NCAA tournament for some lower-seeded teams to go up against. But it it should be
1: fun. Well, how do you feel about the rumor that Duke lost this game on purpose just to keep North Carolina in sole possession of last place? I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure if Kay would would do that favor for Roy. Um, I I still can't believe uh, State lost. To I know. UNC, but I'm saying that as someone who the team I cover just lost two games. I mean, NC State, yeah, they're still unranked at this point. Yeah, I mean, but Wake Forest. It's, I mean, there's there's no way around it. That's that's a bad loss. It's it, a bad. I mean, that if you're gonna, if that's the one loss you could you were just gonna say. It's bad because it, like Clemson, they were without Wendell Moore and Joey Baker, and how much those two would have helped, who knows and they were still even adjusting and developing chemistry at that point. At this at this time though, everyone's there. Everyone has roles. You you got to do it and I would I would love if coach K would publicly at least help have a little accountability so he doesn't just put it all on them. I mean, it's good for for them to have accountability as well, obviously. But at the same time, I think uh, the ability to kind of work together, coach, player, everyone, I think that will be key. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be talking about two big wins. Let's close it out. Duke is going to be at Virginia, uh, leap year February 29th, then home against NC State trying to get revenge against NC State. So hopefully they will come out on top. So for Greg, I am Adam Cromer. Thanks so much for listening to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'll be talking to you soon.